Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the future of abortion rights and the broader reproductive justice movement in the face of a conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court. Clips today are from AJ+, On the Media, the National Network of Abortion Funds, ABC News' Democratic Primary Debate, and Capitalism Hits Home. Is the GOP obsessed with outlawing abortion? The country is witnessing an unprecedented wave of abortion restrictions. But this anti-abortion rights platform did pop up suddenly. The GOP has had to be patient, strategic, and aggressive in their tactics, and occasionally say things like this. I've noticed that everybody that is for abortion has already been born. Wow, thanks for that groundbreaking insight, Mr. President. I'm going to break down why the GOP embraced abortion as a core policy and how we ended up with so many abortion restrictions. First, it may come as a surprise, but the GOP and their supporters weren't always against abortion rights. Three years after Roe v. Wade, a landmark Supreme Court case that made abortion legal in the United States was decided, public opinion polls actually showed that, on average, Republican voters supported abortion rights more than Democrats. Well, historically, neither party was really pro-choice or pro-life, and there were politicians in either party who could be found in each camp. So there were lots of Catholic pro-life Democrats, like uh, presidential candidate Joe Biden at one time, opposed abortion. Republican First Lady Betty Ford called Roe v. Wade a great, great decision. And Republican Vice President Nelson Rockefeller had campaigned for abortion rights in New York. Even the chair of the Republican National Committee was pro-abortion rights. Despite this, in the mid-70s, something started to happen in the GOP. Three or four years after Roe v. Wade was passed, uh, the GOP was definitely moving toward a more anti-abortion position. So the GOP Republican platform in 1976, for example, had some language about supporting the efforts of people who wanted to ban abortion through a constitutional amendment. Abortion really started becoming a core issue for the GOP when this guy got into office. Is an unborn child a human being? I happen to believe it is. It really changed in 1980. In part, that was because Ronald Reagan was the first candidate to really make abortion a major issue. Um, He was trying to capitalize on something that I think Richard Nixon had identified earlier in the 70s, which was that there were lots of traditionally Democratic voters. These were often um, Catholics or evangelical Protestants who were blue collar, may have been part of a union, generally voted for Democrats because they thought the Democrats fought for the little guy. And Reagan thought that those voters could be peeled off if people in the GOP appealed to their views on issues like abortion. Fortunately for Reagan, his presidency coincided with another movement gaining momentum. Um, This was also significantly the time when the religious right was mobilizing. So you began to see groups like the Moral Majority trying to bring evangelical Protestants into politics in a way that really hadn't been true before. Um, So the GOP thought it would be important to present itself as, as the GOP put it as the party of life. The GOP's appeal to social conservatives like conservative Catholics and evangelicals kept growing and both the party's leadership and base began to change. By 2009, only 12% of self-identifying Republicans supported abortion in all circumstances. Now, all the new abortion restrictions passed in 2019 are actually the outcome of a legal fight that intensified during the Obama presidency. 
specifically the 2010 state legislature elections. In 2010, two years after Obama became president, over 1,000 state Senate seats and almost 5,000 state House seats were up for re-election. 2010 was a huge Republican wave year, and a lot of that could have been predicted in advance. You know, simply put, a lot of Democrats were under the belief that because they'd elected Barack Obama in 2008, maybe they didn't have to show up at the polls in 2010. The GOP was victorious. In fact, they did so well, they literally made history. The sweep gave Republicans their largest number of seats since the Great Depression. They flipped 20 chambers. That means either a state's House or a state's Senate went from blue to red. By the end of election night, they had seized control of the entire legislature, so both a state's House and a state's Senate in 25 states. One state they gained full control over was Alabama. I would actually trace this back to 2008 when Democrats had a huge year, elected Barack Obama president and took over the U.S. Senate, the U.S. House. A lot of people thought that the Democrats in this country were going to ride a wave of changing American demographics to become the majority party here for a generation to come. And it didn't exactly turn out that way, did it? This is because Republicans realized that the 2010 elections could be much more consequential, even historic. Why historic? Because the year that the state legislative elections took place was the same year that the census was undertaken. Once every 10 years after the latest census, states redraw the boundaries of their legislative districts. And that's a big deal. In 2010, political strategist Karl Rove wrote an op-ed that was subtitled, He who controls redistricting can control Congress. And guess who controls redistricting in most states? state legislatures. What the Republicans understood was that control of state legislatures, these most important chambers in a state as far as a state house, a state senate, the most local level of representation is important because those people also draw the congressional lines in this country. Republicans thought all of this through. None of this was by accident. They realized that these changing American demographics left them with the potential of being locked out of power around the country for a long time to come. And they saw the opportunity that redistricting presented for them. Of course, gerrymandering, meaning to draw boundaries in a way that favors a specific party, has been occurring since like the early 19th century. And both Democrats and Republicans are guilty of it. But after Republicans swept the 2010 elections, they were in prime position to readjust the boundaries to favor the GOP. Republicans uh, thought about redistricting in 2010 in terms of seats at the table. And what they wanted to do was control every single one of those seats. Ordinarily, if you control the state house, the state senate, or the governor's office, you have a seat at the table. You are inside the room when these maps are being drawn. What Republicans did was they took control of every single seat and they locked the Democrats outside of the room. Democrats didn't see this coming because this wasn't the way it had worked in the past. They had almost always controlled one of those branches, so they never had to worry about being completely on the outside. Republicans changed the very paradigm. They shifted the entire way folks think about a redistricting. And as a result, our politics has not been the same ever since. And that's where you start drawing a connection between gerrymandering and abortion laws. There's a straight line between gerrymandering and these extreme abortion bills. Just look at a state like Georgia, for example. 
So Georgia had a statewide election in 2018, or governor, and it was extraordinarily close. There were only 55,000 votes separating the Democrat and the Republican. So you would, you know, safely look at this and say, this is a pretty competitive and equally divided state. The trouble is, it's not that equally divided. Georgia Republicans outnumber Democrats by 30 seats in the state House and 14 seats in the state Senate. So there was a poll taken by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it found that 70 percent of the state backed Roe versus Wade. They did not want to see any legislation in Georgia that would undo the abortion protections guaranteed by Roe versus Wade. But Georgia's legislature advanced those restrictions anyway. They didn't have to worry about this. And gerrymandering is one of the reasons why. Republicans now had the power to take the next step in their abortion fight, restrict abortion access itself. Between 2011 and 2016, states enacted over 300 restrictions on abortions, which accounted for 30% of all abortion restrictions since Roe v. Wade. Just look at this graph showing the number of abortion restrictions enacted per year. Look at the year Roe v. Wade was decided, and then look how the number spikes in 2011, the year after Republicans swept the state legislatures. So in 2010, you saw the mobilization in the United States of what was called the Tea Party movement. Tea Party Republicans were almost uniformly very strongly opposed to abortions, and they took over tons of state legislatures after 2010, and then passed really an unprecedented number of abortion restrictions after they took office. God bless America. While states were not directly challenging the legality of abortion, they made it harder for many people to get one. Well, so there are a lot of different strategies that they've used. You see one strategy unfolding in Missouri right now, where there's only one remaining clinic that the state is very likely to no longer license, which would mean there would be no abortion clinics in the state of Missouri. Another strategy would be to sort of put barriers in the place of women who are seeking abortions, like waiting periods, or laws denying funding for abortion, or other things that would make either abortion more unpleasant to get or more inconvenient to get. According to a Bloomberg analysis, clinics that provide abortions have been closing at a record pace. Between 2011 and 2016, 162 clinics closed nationwide, while only 21 opened. So, as the GOP severely restricts access to abortion, segments of the anti-abortion rights movement see their final goal, overturning Roe v. Wade, within arm's reach, mainly because the Supreme Court now has a conservative majority. However, the anti-abortion rights movement might be too optimistic. In May 2019, the Supreme Court blocked Indiana's request to reinstate a ban on abortions based on disability, gender, or race. It may be a sign that the court is not eager to fully dismantle Roe v. Wade yet. But even if the Supreme Court decides not to hear challenges to Roe v. Wade, there's no sign that the GOP intends to slow down erosion of abortion access. And there's no sign that the traditionally libertarian party has any plans of breaking up with its anti-abortion rights base. So what are we facing now? She says there are two kinds of attacks on Roe. One is the use of trap laws, or targeted regulation of abortion providers. She thinks the conservatives on the court have a preference for chipping away at access, rather than an outright ban. Presumably, by that theory, they will never write the sentence Roe v. Wade is now overturned. 
The second kind of attack adopted this year is much more direct. What we're hearing in Alabama, what we're hearing in Georgia, you know, Texas had hearings about whether they could actually have capital punishment uh, for women who have abortions. So there has been this new strain in passing these laws that are just purely punitive. This is not just about abortion anymore. Donald Trump has a nominee up for a federal judicial seat who is opposed to IVF, who is opposed to surrogacy. Since we recorded this interview, that judge has been confirmed. I think that we fail to apprehend that the attack on abortion loops in an attack on contraception, on Plan B, even sex education. It's incredibly myopic to think that this ends at six-week bans or heartbeat bans. I think this really does include, as I said, objections to even surrogacy. There's a a little bit of nimbyism sitting in New York and saying, well, it's never going to happen here because we'll always have access. But I think the long game is federal criminal penalties for women who terminate their pregnancies. So fears about the end of Rome miss the bigger picture. Despite wide-ranging threats to women's reproductive freedom and legal rights, election after election, confirmation after confirmation, the conversation usually stops at Roe. In the case that every nominee gets asked about, Roe v. Wade, can you tell me whether Roe was decided correctly? Do you view Roe as having super precedent? Senator McCain, you believe Roe v. Wade should be overturned. Senator Obama, you believe it shouldn't. Do you believe that reasonable people can disagree on Roe v. Wade? Do you think Roe v. Wade changed American society? Roe is the settled law of the land. Uh, Do you mean settled for you? Roe by the way, is not the law. That last voice was Duke Law Professor Neil Siegel, Justice Ginsburg's former law clerk. He's also served as a special counsel to senators during the Supreme Court confirmations, including those of Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. Siegel says that actually, the law of the land was established not by Roe, but by Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. That case upheld the right to abortion while allowing some restrictions. But it did stipulate that restrictions could not impose a, quote, undue burden for women. Today's court challenges are about that standard set by Casey. I think it's important, not just pedantic, because Casey allows much more government regulation of abortion than Roe ever did. Describe what you think a better question would be beyond, will you uphold Roe versus Wade? Does the Constitution protect women too and in what ways? Do restrictions on access to contraception implicate gender equality? How? Do restrictions on access to abortion? Right? What about the treatment of pregnant workers in various circumstances? Because I think it would underscore that it's not simply a litmus test about views on abortion. It's about a much broader constitutional vision in which the parties today in a very polarized country really disagree. I mean, why does opposition to abortion among certain religious groups highly correlated with opposition to same-sex marriage. Whatever you think about same-sex marriage, it has nothing to do with destroying fetuses. So why is it that you have similarly strong opposition? I think it has a lot to do with views about the traditional family and people occupying non-traditional gender roles. There's a term, reproductive justice, which expands the frame beyond Roe and beyond abortion. So the elevator speech is the right to have a child, not to have a child, and to raise and parent your children in safe and healthy ways. Implicit in that right is the human right to bodily autonomy, gender identity, the right to control, and defines one's sex and sexuality. Loretta Ross is a visiting professor at Smith College. 
and she's one of 12 African-American women who in 1994 were eager to broaden how these issues were discussed in the U.S. We spliced together the concept of reproductive rights and social justice and created the term reproductive justice. In the U.S. abortion argument, relatively little time seemed to be devoted to the lack of options leading up to pregnancy, access to contraception, say, or sex education. And even less attention was paid to the challenges women face after choosing to have a child, including limited or no access to maternal health care or child care. And in all this, the U.S. lagged behind the international conversation. Well, we came up with the framework three months before the September 1994 International Conference on Population and Development in Cairo. But when we went to Cairo, what we found that what we were demanding under the U.S. constitutional system was something that the world feminist community was demanding under the human rights framework, that no individual can successfully manage their own fertility in a context in which they're experiencing systemic and sustained underdevelopment. In other words, you can't self-help yourself out of a situation where there's no health care system. So it sounds like you had two realizations during that time. One, that maybe choice was too narrow. And the second, that you were not asking for as much as your global colleagues. Well, that's true. When people talked about human rights in the United States, they basically imagined a tortured prisoner in a jail overseas somewhere. They weren't necessarily seeing the human rights violations that are committed in the United States by either the government, the state, or corporations, or individuals when people are denied full access to their reproductive decision-making. And so we felt it was very vital to bring human rights home and not be limited to the narrow interpretations and the legalistic limits of the U.S. Constitution. Ross is also a founder of the sister song Women of Color Reproductive Health Collective, and she's served as an escort to women and girls who don't have access to abortion where they live and need to travel to other states for the procedure. A 2017 study found that nearly 90% of U.S. counties, accounting for almost 40% of women of reproductive age, had no abortion clinics whatsoever. And yet, geography isn't the only barrier. She says that imagining Roe as a sacred rampart that guarantees access to abortion has been wrong since pretty much the beginning. Well, we've always been in a post-Roe world for people who lack access to basic health care. And of course, with the passing of the 1976 Hyde Amendment that set up reproductive health care access, depending on whether or not your health care is provided by the federal government, which prohibits, of course, poor women on Medicaid and the Indian Health Services and in the military from accessing the same reproductive health care, particularly abortion care, that people who don't have their health care provided by the federal government. Since the 70s, we've had a two-tiered healthcare system that is packed with discrimination based on status and class. So should we stop talking about Roe versus Wade then? Well, you don't pull your finger out the dike while you're building a better dam. <laughs> I mean, no. We still have to talk about it, but we have to also recognize that its porousness is what allows people to chip away with it. I've never thought that the abortion issue was a standalone issue. 
Yale Law School professor Reva Siegel is co-editor of the book Reproductive Rights and Justice Stories. She's got another phrase to denote the broader issue of women's reproductive rights and freedoms. She calls it pro-choice life. The pro-choice life framework is asking us to evaluate the stakes. If a state claims to restrict abortion because it cares about unborn life, but it doesn't help a woman who wants to avoid motherhood do so through providing sex ed or contraception, or it doesn't help a woman who wants to become a mother by providing her health care or work family accommodations, how genuinely or systematically does it really care about protecting life? What are we to make of the underlying value choices there? Are they judgments about women, or are they really commitments to the unborn? Take, for example, the state involved in the latest Supreme Court case. The Attorney General of Louisiana said today, we will not waver in defense of our state's pro-woman and pro-life laws, and we will continue to do all we legally can to protect Louisiana women. So it's restricting access to abortion, but it has one of the highest maternal mortality rates with respect to childbearing in the United States. With respect to race, the numbers are even worse. Similarly, the state of Louisiana hasn't done Medicaid expansion for pregnant women that other states have. So there's a point to asking jurisdictions that claim to be pro-life outside the abortion context, how do their policy choices compare with other jurisdictions? There actually are commitments of care that may prove to be purple issues through which we can do coalition politics, even if we can't agree around the abortion issue. So in other words, it's a way to look at the problem, but also a way to find common ground that we may think of as non-existent. A hundred percent. For an example, when I was in law school, I worked on issues of employment accommodation for pregnant women. It's ridiculous, but we're still having difficulty with that question. You would think that a country as torn up as we are around issues of abortion would at least manage to get it right with respect to the employment of women when they're pregnant. But it turns out that that's one of the highest issues of employment discrimination that we have. Right now in Congress, there was finally a hearing for a Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, which would require the reasonable accommodation of pregnant employees. And to this point, the Republican Party has not quite managed to get in line in support of the legislation. The question is, why not? Why wouldn't the party of life commit along those lines? Having said this, I think 27 states have passed these laws at the state level, and many are red and purple. South Carolina has passed the law, Kentucky has passed the law, Utah has passed the law. So these are laws that jurisdictions that consider themselves pro-life can get behind. There are grounds where people can come together, and I think it would be a great thing if we found more of those. Now it's time to take a break from today's topic to play another round of America's favorite political game show. Check your blind spot! (laughs) 
That's right. It's Check Your Blind Spot, powered by Ground News, the first ever news comparison platform that provides readers with objective data about the underlying political bias in all published news stories. I use Ground News to check my blind spot and quiz contestants on theirs. With us today is our reigning champion, Amanda from Boston. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. And let's dive right in and get ready for round one. In whose blind spot is this story? The opening quote is, We need to take away children. And the headline is, Jeff Sessions and top DOJ officials were, quote, a driving force behind migrant family separations in 2018. I mean, this one's pretty straightforward. This is definitely in the rights blind spot. They seem to like to ignore children being kept in cages. Correct. That is correct. Kept in cages and separated from their families, of course. Let's go ahead and move on to round two. You knocked that one out of the park. (laughs) In whose blind spot is this story? The director of national intelligence is declassifying Brennan's notes, Brennan being the former CIA director, and CIA memo on Hillary Clinton, quote, stirring up scandal between Trump and Russia. Hmm. That's interesting, because... There's some wiggle room there. Hmm. I'm going to go with it's in the left's blind spot? Correct. Ah. Exactly. And the giveaway is that the current director is declassifying this information right before the election. Of course. Oh, wow. Oh, oh, And this is the kind of red meat that the right loves. If you're on the left, one of the only stories you may find is from CNN with this headline, former CIA director accuses Intel chief of selectively declassifying documents to help Trump. So Trump has been tweeting about this. He says he wants everything to be declassified. But of course, it's all of the parts that make it look like Trump was totally justified in accusing the Clintons of drumming up something that didn't really exist when the ultimate conclusion of all of the intelligence agencies is that Russia was involved. Right. The Trump administration was talking to them. Why are we still talking about 2016? Like, it is now. It is amazing that that is what keeps happening on the right. They just want to rehash it. It's just that not very many... But they accuse the left of wanting to rehash it. Right, but not very much interesting (laughs) stuff has happened since then. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, it's been real boring out there. Yeah. I know. We're just craving some some big bombshell news. So you're two for two. Let's Mm -hmm. see if you can black this one out with round three. In whose blind spot is this story? President Trump calls for Section 230 repeal as Facebook yanks and Twitter tags his COVID posts. Trump posted claiming the flu is more deadly than COVID-19, Facebook yanked it altogether, and Twitter added a misinformation warning label. Section 230 is the legislation which indemnifies websites like social media and all websites with comment sections against liability for content generated by end users rather than from the company themselves, such as every Facebook post and tweet that's ever existed. (laughs) I mean, 
again, there's some wiggle room here, depending on which angle you're coming from that. I would guess that it's on the left spine spot. <gasps> okay. Okay. Mayland. That, that was going to be a tricky. Yeah, that was a tricky one because, I mean, the the right likes to rant about how social media is unfair to the president, but the left likes to have these conversations about how to regulate <laughs> social media. So exactly, if the left were talking about it, they probably would want to talk about rewriting that regulation in some form or another. But uh, as they are not really talking about it at all. Only the right-wing sites are talking about it in the context of accusing social media sites of censorship. But the best article was actually written by Reason Magazine, which Ground News lists as leaning to the right. I think they're sort of libertarian-ish. And their take was in staunch defense of Section 230 and the freedom of anyone to say whatever they want on, on social media pointing out that if Trump were to get his way with the repeal of that section, then he probably wouldn't even be able to tweet that in the first place because the social media sites would have to be vetting every single post that anyone writes, which would cripple the whole system. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so congratulations. Well, once thank you. Once again, winner and still champion, Amanda from Boston. Thanks for playing. Thank you. That wraps it up for today. It's important to mention that all of today's commentary and analysis is ours alone and not necessarily that of Ground News. If you'd like to try their service, get a discount on their premium features and let them know we sent you, go to ground.news best. As always, whether for traffic safety or media literacy, never forget to... Check your blind spot! Abortion is legal in all 50 states, and access to abortion is supported by the majority of Americans. But that doesn't mean everyone who needs an abortion can get one. Access to reproductive health care, including abortion, largely depends on where you live and how much money you have. Anti-abortion advocates have been working to restrict abortion since the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision in 1973, which made abortion legal nationwide. Passed by Congress each year, the Hyde Amendment bans federal funding of abortion. This policy impacts millions of people in the U.S. and overly affects people with low incomes and communities of color. The Hyde Amendment forces many people with public health insurance to stay pregnant when they do not want to. Although most people in the U.S. support reproductive rights, anti-abortion lawmakers have made getting an abortion very difficult. In some places, a person seeking an abortion might be forced to travel several states away, experience delays, such as government-mandated waiting periods, unnecessary extra-clinic visits, and go through more difficult procedures for care. Procedures that could have been easily and safely provided close to their home and their community. A person traveling for an abortion may need to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars for airfare and hotels, meals away from home, car rental or bus tickets, and childcare, often while having to miss shifts at work because they don't have paid leave. In order to afford an abortion, a person may need to take on extra work, sell their belongings, forego buying groceries, or make other sacrifices of basic needs. 
Someone you love may have to choose between groceries and rent or health care. On top of the political, financial, and physical barriers to getting an abortion, there is a social and cultural barrier that affects many of us. Abortion stigma is so common that a person choosing to end a pregnancy may feel very alone when making their decision because the media inaccurately portrays abortion. From TV shows, movies, and music to the many false or misleading stories about abortion in the news. Family, friends, co-workers, and intimate partners may also talk negatively about abortion in ways that can further isolate a person who's making a decision about their health care. This leads to people being afraid to tell their loved ones that they want an abortion and need support. The truth is, abortion is very common. In order for abortion to be truly an option, it must not only be legal, but actually available without the shame. It's time we work together towards a world where all people have the power and resources to care for and support their bodies, identities, and health for themselves and their families. We need to take the hassle, hustle, and harassment out of health care. It's time to change the conversation about abortion to make it a real option available to all people without shame or judgment. We all love someone who has had an abortion. Whether we know it or not, all of our lives are affected by abortion access. Organizations like the National Network of Abortion Funds are helping people all over the country to access and fund abortions. The National Network of Abortion Funds believes that compassion is a radical act and that love and acceptance are part of activism. Abortion funds offer support in many ways. They might provide information, money, travel planning, and accommodations, accompaniment, or emotional support. People working or volunteering with an abortion fund might offer rides to clinics, a place to stay, meals, a hot shower, a change of clothes, childcare, or a hand to hold. Abortion funds are fighting to ensure everyone has the power and resources to decide if, when, and how to grow their families. Together, we can take the stigma and shame out of abortion and shift our vision to be one of radical love that supports all people in making decisions for their bodies and lives in freedom. Change starts with you. Talk to your family and friends about why you believe everyone should be able to access abortion. Offer time to organizations that support abortion access. Give money to your local abortion fund to make sure someone in your community has access to the compassion, support, and health care they need. Everyone loves someone who had an abortion, and everyone has a role to play in creating a future where access to abortion is free from harm and shame. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, voting is not enough. Register voters and re-register purged voters in battleground states. As of the publishing of this episode, we have less than one month until Election Day, just 25 days. Visit bestoftheleft.com slash 2020 action to explore our election action guide, which we're calling Voting is Not Enough, because it's just not. It's still early October, and voter registration efforts are critical right now. Though the deadlines for a few states have passed, there are still many states, including key battlegrounds, where the registration window is still open. 
Michigan, Arizona, Iowa, North Carolina, Colorado, Georgia, Florida, Pennsylvania, and more are the targets of Field Team 6, a West Coast-based get-out-the-vote organization that strategically partners with over 100 state and national organizations to make the most impact. With multiple phone banking and text banking events and trainings held every single day of the week, there's just no excuse not to get involved. As we've mentioned before, the Field Team 6 events also include a unique opportunity to talk to purged voters in battleground states thanks to a new DNC tool. These are purged voters who are likely Democrats or independents and are mostly younger, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. The goal is to not only make these voters aware that they have been purged or labeled as inactive, but get them re-registered and on the rolls again with the information they need to vote. As you know, Republicans in key battleground states have conducted massive voter roll purges this year, which had a major impact on primaries that were held during the early days of the pandemic. In North Carolina alone, Field Team 6 has a list of 500,000 purged voters, so every volunteer is needed. And remember, trying to undo this assault on voting rights is not just about the presidential election. State legislatures need to be flipped, too, if we want to solidify, protect, and expand reproductive justice at the state level with legislation. So head to fieldteam6.org, that's fieldteam and the number 6.org, slash actions, to check their calendar of events and sign up for a shift. If you're not on the West Coast, just a note that Field Team 6 lists the Pacific time first for all events, so adjust accordingly. And finally, just a reminder that relational voting or contacting your immediate networks to encourage them to vote has been proven to be a wildly effective get-out-the-vote strategy. Be sure you're reaching out to your friends and family who may be overwhelmed by being an essential worker, job loss, managing their kids' remote schooling, or just everything, and offer to help guide them through the registration process or make a voting plan. Everyone could use a little help right now. The segment notes include all the links to this information as well as additional resources, and once again, this segment is available on the Voting Is Not Enough page at bestoftheleft.com slash 2020 action. So if making sure people are registered to vote in the most important election of our lifetime is important to you, be sure to spread the word about registering voters and re-registering purged voters in battleground states so that others in your network can spread the word too. Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong? Putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong. Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of I want to turn to the Supreme Court, the balance on the court, and the issues before the court right now. President Trump, in just the last 24 hours, saying we've appointed 191 federal judges, two Supreme Court justices, keeping his campaign promise to shift the court to the right with Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. The Affordable Care Act is at the court, climate change is working its way to the court, and a major abortion case is on the docket this year. Vice President Biden, on the issue of abortion, in 2012, you said President Obama's two Supreme Court picks of them, there was no litmus test. We picked people who had an open mind, did not come with an agenda. And you've said before, we both believe that we should not apply narrow litmus tests to appointees to the Supreme Court. But I also do, wait, say, let me just let me just ask: Would you do it differently as president, Mr. Vice President? Would there be a litmus test on if abortion? If you say the rest of what I said, I said that we're going to not appoint anyone who did not have a view that unenumerated rights existed in the Constitution. That's not a specific test; it's a generic test. And only way, the only reason women have the right to choose is because it's determined that there's unenumerated rights coming from the Ninth Amendment in the Constitution. That's what I said, and I was I. 
was part of the reason why Elena Kagan, who worked for me, got on the Supreme Court. I was part of the reason why Ruth Bader Ginsburg is on the court. I was part of the reason why Sotomayor is on the court, and she swore me in. I presided, and I'm the reason why this right wasn't taken away a long time ago, because I almost single-handedly made sure that Robert Bork did not get on the court because he did not think there should be enumerated rights. Unenumerated. So let me just Let's drill get down. that straight. Mr. Vice President, I am aware of what you said, which is why I'm asking, would you do it differently now? Would there be a litmus test on abortion? Yes, look, here's the deal. The litmus test on abortion relates to the, the fundamental value in the Constitution. A woman does have a right to choose. I would, in fact, if they rule it to be unconstitutional, I will send to the United States Congress, and it will pass, I believe, a bill that, 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 that excuse me, legislates Roe v. Wade adjusted by Casey. It should, it's a woman's right to do that, period. And if you call that a litmus test, it's a litmus test. But what I was talking about in the past, so no one gets confused here, is if there is no, if you, if you read the Constitution very, very narrowly and say there are no unenumerated rights, if it doesn't say it in the Constitution, it doesn't exist. You cannot have any of the things I care about, any of the things I care about as a progressive member of the United States Congress at the time and as vice president, as a member of society. Mr. Vice President, thank you. Senator Warren? Look, I've lived in an America in which abortion was illegal. And rich women still got abortions. And that's what we have to remember about this. States are heading toward trying to ban abortion outright, and the Supreme Court seems headed in exactly that direction as well. If we are going to protect the people of the United States of America, and we are going to protect our rights to have dominion over our own bodies, then it's going to mean we can't simply rely on the courts. Three out of every four people in America believe right now that the rule of Roe versus Wade should be the law. That means we should be pushing for a congressional solution as well. It is time to have a national law to protect the right of a woman's choice. Senator Warren, thank you. <laughs> Senator Klobuchar, I do want to come to you. Should there be a litmus test? It's an active call here tonight. I did want to come to you on this question as Thank well. You. Should there be a litmus test on abortion? Um, I would only appoint judges that would respect precedent. And one of those key precedents is Roe v. Wade. In addition, in addition, you have got to put it into law. Donald Trump, and I think it's really important to take it to him, to him here, when he was running for election, and this is a case I will make on the debate stage against him, he actually said that he wanted to put women women in jail. He then dialed it back and said, no, I want to put doctors in jail. Is it a big surprise then we're seeing states like Alabama start enacting laws that would criminalize doctors who perform abortions? It's not. And that is why it's going to be really important when you look at the overwhelming public support for funding Planned Parenthood, for making sure women have access to contraceptions, to making sure that they have a right to choose, that we make this case strongly and loudly. Senator Klobuchar, thank you. Mayor Buttigieg, you have signaled that you'd be open to the idea of expanding the court. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had suggested leaving the court as it is, saying, quote, nine seems to be a good number. And in fact, she said if the number of justices is increased, quote, it would make the court appear partisan. It would be one side saying, when we're in power, we're going to enlarge the number of judges to have more people who will vote the way we want them to. Is Justice Ginsburg wrong? Well, if all we did was change the number of justices, then I agree with her that that could be the consequence. What I've called 
called for is not only reforming the number of justices on the bench, but structural reform so that some of the justices are not appointed through a partisan process. We cannot allow the Supreme Court to continue to become one more political battlefield as we are seeing today. And the time has come for us to think bigger, not just reforming the makeup of the court, as America, by the way, has done several times in our history, but also remember that the founders gave us the power to amend the Constitution for a reason, and we shouldn't be afraid to use it. It's not something you do lightly or quickly, but when it comes to something like Citizens United, which holds that corporations have the same political soul as people, and that spending money to influence an election is the same thing as writing an op-ed to your local paper, we need a constitutional amendment to clear that up and protect our democracy. We've just heard clips today, starting with AJ Plus laying out the history of the GOP pivoting to being against abortion. On the media, explored the growth and evolution of the reproductive justice movement. We heard an episode of our new game show, Check Your Blind Spot, sponsored by Ground News. The National Network of Abortion Funds explained the hurdles and stigma people seeking abortions face, and that the sheer number of people who have abortions means that every one of us likely knows and and love someone who's had the procedure. We heard a clip from the ABC News Democratic primary debate from earlier this year, and all of that was available to everyone, but members also heard a couple of bonus clips that everyone else missed out on. Those clips were AJ Plus doing another in-depth mini-documentary about what happens in real life when abortion access is restricted, and Dr. Harriet Fraud on Capitalism Hits Home described the authoritarian and patriarchal tendencies of societies that restrict abortion. For non-members, those bonus clips I just mentioned are linked in the show notes, and they are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now we'll hear from you, and this message is in response to a discussion that we are having on the members-only bonus episodes in which we're discussing American myths as part of an upcoming series I'm working on. But this message is perfectly applicable for everyone to hear. Hi, Jay. The saddest and scariest myth in U.S. politics is one person, one vote. Once the Supreme Court affirmed that this is not generally the case, it added another to the set of tools the GOP can use to hang on to minority power. I am sure they will keep chipping away the few guarantees we have. Coincidentally, I just read Charles Dickens' American Notes, based on his visit here in 1842. He mentions two interrelated flaws in this country, slavery and unequal representation. One is tied to the other. Yes, the claim, we're a republic not a democracy is the old Birch Society claim, and they used it to attack the one-person, one-vote standard. The Supreme Court has now made it law of the land that we as individuals have no right to a vote. That is part of the overall goal of the GOP to secure minority rule. 
It also plays into the fact that the desires of the rich and powerful are heard by those in government whether the incumbents are Republicans or Democrats. If you told the average voter the will of the masses is not heard by those in power, they generally would not be surprised. But if you told the average voter that one person one vote is not enshrined in federal law, they would be surprised to find that it isn't. You stay safe and awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voiced mails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 2 2-0-2-9-9-9-3-9-9-1, or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So for a little bit more background on the message we just heard from Lance, he is responding to some comments that I made on the members only bonus episode recently. And I was just sort of ranting, complaining about this old, tired talking point that I've been hearing but not understanding for maybe decades now, like maybe 20 years. I I have heard people saying this sort of thing where they emphasize that we live in a republic and not a democracy. And the way I have always interpreted that is, who cares? <laughs> to distinguish between the two is silly because... No one lives in a pure democracy. We all live in representative democracies, meaning that people vote and we have an expectation that our government is going to reflect the will of the majority of, the, of people, but we do it through a representative system rather than a direct democracy system. And to explain that or to insist on making that distinction seems silly because no one's confused about it. And only this weird sliver of people decide to make a big deal out of that. And so I was just sort of ranting about that. But, my, you know, my ultimate conclusion was like, what is up with these people? I don't even get it. And Lance strolls into the conversation and clarifies something for me so nicely by pointing out that it stems from the John Birch Society oh, everything is making so much more sense now. And if you're not familiar with the John Birch Society, I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but it's a pretty safe description to suggest that you think of them as like the Cold War Tea Party, maybe with a dash of QAnon thrown in. They're hyper-conservative and very conspiratorial. Their whole thing is hyper-conservative combined with very conspiratorial. And because it was the Cold War, their focus was, of course, anti-communism. And so they're still around today, but they don't get as much play. They're, they've sort of been pushed to the side a little bit because other movements are just a little bit more modern, a little bit more sexy. And so the Tea Party and, and, and these days QAnon have more traction than the John Birch Society. But if you're a conservative kook and you think it's a little beneath you to dress up in a tricorn hat or get sucked down the rabbit hole to the point where you decide to 
take a machine gun to a pizza parlor. If that's just not your style, then you can still join up with the John Birch Society and be super kooky, but feel you know a little bit um, better about yourself. You get to dress a little nicer if you want to join that group. So I just did a little searching around to get some background information on John Birch and this making a distinction between a Republican and democracy. And I just found a doozy of a explainer video I wanted to share. It's it's brand new, you know, within the last few weeks or months, because it's talking about the pandemic. And kind of what you need to hear or what you need to know is that anything they don't like that the government may do, they refer to that as democracy. And anything the government does that they like, they probably think, yeah, it's doing a good job because it's functioning as a republic. So it's a nice sort of clever <laughs> way to distinguish what they like and they don't like, and they don't like democracy. They're really super out front about it. They, uh, they, they think democracy is, is terrible and would ultimately cause the country to collapse. And I'm not exaggerating. So to explain... I'll, I'll just let this guy do it. He's going to explain sort of the origin of this, going back to John Adams. And then because he's from the John Birch Society, you're going to see that he's going to link it immediately to Marxism. Let's quote John Adams, our second president on democracy. In a letter to John Taylor in 1814, he said, quote, Democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Obviously, Karl Marx knew this. Since 34 years later, in the Communist Manifesto, he said that the communists needed to win the battle for democracy. In other words, to establish democracies. The communists know that democracies die and can be replaced by a dictatorship after the people have been fooled into allowing things that not only destroy their country, but cause the people to come under authoritarian rule. What we are witnessing in the controls imposed by Marxist leaders around the country during this pandemic is democracy in action, the majority allowing these leaders to get away with imposing rules and edicts that have no basis in law. So as I said, and as, as you can hear, he's, you know, he's a much more respectable kind of conspiracy theorist with a, you know, a sense of history, and he's done some reading. But in order to come to the correct conclusions, he does what any good follower of QAnon would tell you to do, which is to read between the lines. Don't listen to what people say. If Marx says that we need to win the war for democracy, what he obviously means is, we need to create democracies so that we can destroy them and turn them into dictatorships. In this case, I just want to point out, I mean, the, the whole video is great, and I could, I could spend a long time picking apart the whole thing. But when he talks about, you know, he calls out New York and says that New York is putting in place measures for the pandemic, that they are exercising democracy. That is democracy. What the hell does that even mean? No one voted on what kind of measures should be in place. No one voted on whether we should have a, a mask mandate or anything like that. So what democracy is just when the government does something and the people 
follow the rules or are expected to follow the rules, then that's democracy, I guess. Or if the government oversteps its legal bounds, as the John Birch Society would see it, because like practically everything the government does is overstepping the legal bounds as the John Birch Society sees it. But I guess just doing something like that, having a mask mandate or, or putting any measures in place to fight the pandemic is by definition democracy. So that, that's that nice, uh, clever turn of phrase that they just get to make anything that they don't like democracy. And if the government isn't doing things that they don't like, well, then that's because it's a republic. But to wrap up, I need to explain where this all comes from. I mean, because you can see where people are really coming from when they are hypocrites about it. And it's not that being a hypocrite is the worst thing in the world. And, you know, maybe you need to change your mind or maybe you need to evolve your thinking or, or whatever. But when a person does that, then you start to get a sense of where they're really coming from. And that is evident in spades with the John Birch Society and their anti-democracy stance, because where it all comes from is a desire for minority rule. What they will say is, we live in a republic, not a democracy, because we don't want the 49% to be bullied around and lorded over by the 51%. But on the flip side, they seem to have no problem with the reverse. They have no problem with minority rule. They have no problem with, I mean, what's maybe more accurate these days is like the 40% being in charge and telling the 60% what to do. They seem to have no problem with that whatsoever. And so really, it's about keeping the right kind of people in charge about the, you know, select privileged few. And so this uh, was explained quite well in the New York Times in an opinion piece by Jamal Bowie, talking about a little exchange that happened between AOC and a Republican on Twitter, in which the Republican brings up this concept of clarifying that we live in a republic. And so, uh, you know, Bowie concludes his article explaining or sort of debunking this whole concept by saying, what lies behind that quip, in other words, is an impulse against democratic representation. It is part and parcel of the drive to make American government a closed domain for a select privileged few. If you're interested, that article title is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Understands Democracy Better Than Republicans Do by Jamal Bowie, August 27th, 2019. And again, thanks to Lance for, for bringing some clarity to that issue. It, it's like I'd been working on a jigsaw puzzle for a good long time, and Lance showed up and said, oh, are you missing this piece? So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991, or by emailing me as Lance did at j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. 
Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Thank you.